0: Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Sunday Mornings Podcast,
2: sponsored by QuickBooks, backing you. If you work for yourself, don't think of that sound as a receipt being crumpled. Think of it as lost deductions, because every business receipt you lose is cash lost. $5, $3, $2. And if you misplace $10 of business receipts every workday for a year, that's $2,600 in lost deductions, unless you've already snapped them with QuickBooks.
3: Snap and sort your expenses for maximum deductions at tax time. Visit QuickBooks.com. Smarter business tools for the world's hardest workers. QuickBooks. Backing you.
4: Good morning, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is a special edition of Sunday Morning. It's our annual food issue, our pre-Thanksgiving invitation to eat, drink, and be merry. Eating well has traditionally meant eating three square meals a day, a pattern we'll be following this morning. To start us off, breakfast. Susan Spencer will report our cover story.
5: From bacon and eggs to cereal and milk, odds are your first meal of the day is also your favorite.
6: Maybe after waking up, you're grateful to be alive another day.
5: How would you describe the average American's relationship to cereal? Cereal is a very personal choice for people. We're serving up breakfast, not to mention lunch, then dinner, ahead on Sunday morning.
4: We'll also be spending time in the kitchen with Chrissy Teigen, a swimsuit model who's now the very model of a modern chef. Turns out she cooks in harmony with a talented partner, as Rita Braver discovered.
7: After bearing almost all as a swimsuit model and bearing her soul on social media, (laughs) there is not much they can faze Chrissy Teigen especially not her husband, singer John Legend. She got up the a name. Grease fire now. I told you. Cooking up something with Chrissy and John.
8: OK, the grease fire has been averted.
4: John Legend to the rescue. <laughs> Ahead on
7: Sunday morning. Those ribs look beautiful, by the way.
4: Whatever the meal, it's always better if it's been put together by someone with talented taste buds. Lee Cowan has found just such a person.
9: It's not really polite to stick out your tongue. But, then again, if your tongue is said to be worth a million dollars, why not?
6: I knew that there was something different about my tongue, but most people don't spend a lot of time looking at their tongue.
9: A food designer with truly talented taste. Later, on Sunday morning.
4: Mm. It's good, right? When it comes to spicing up a dish, there may be nothing quite like a dash of black gold. Seth Doan has been to the region of Italy that produces it by the barrel full.
3: To make it, you need grapes, barrels, chestnut, with ash, and patience. Un processo lungo, it's a long process. Lungo. This has been aging for 40 years. Balsamic vinegar later on Sunday morning.
4: There's many a recipe for success in the world of food and drink. We'll be sampling a few this morning, including one John Blackstone saw demonstrated right before his eyes.
10: Okay, now we get to the Irish whiskey. Okay. This is about an ounce and a third here of Irish whiskey. How many of these a day do you make? Well, on a busy day, between two and
11: 3,000. Wow! It takes a lot of Irish whiskey to make a lot of Irish coffee. How a small cafe in San Francisco became the biggest consumer of Irish
4: whiskey on the planet, later on Sunday morning. Those stories and more. All coming up when our Sunday morning podcast continues. Now serving breakfast. There are plenty of options. So which is right for you? A question we put to our Susan Spencer.
0: For me next batch of Lucky
5: Charms, Will Fulton admits that as a kid, cereal just bowled him over. So did you have a favorite?
3: Lucky Charms was a big one, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, a lot of Rice Krispies, all the varieties, Cocoa Rice Krispies, Rice Krispie
0: Treats.
5: Some 20 years later, Fulton is writing for the website Thrillist, where his childhood passion launched a wild article.
3: The assignment was basically to eat nothing but cereal for an entire week.
5: And sure enough. And so was born a cereal cereal eater. For 21 consecutive meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, nothing but cereal.
3: I ate 82 bowls over the course of this
5: seven days. yeah. As the bowls stacked up, he started seeing this lark as a social experiment to answer an existential question.
3: What is cereal's place in my life? in the life of people our
6: age. Cereal is a little bit like reminding yourself that you're a child, even though your parents are not there.
5: I'm having Count chocolate tonight. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. But even if cereal's not on the menu, Yale University food historian Paul Friedman says the first meal of the day is also the best liked.
6: Maybe after waking up, you're grateful to be alive another day.
5: I'm still here. I'm
6: still here, <laughs> and I'm hungry.
5: For hundreds of years breakfast was pretty standard fare
6: some kind of wheat porridge some vegetables from last night a bacon definitely
5: good (laughs) everyone can relate to that but by the early 1900s a man named w.k kellogg yes that kellogg revolutionized mornings wheaties is the first cereal we ever launched Kellogg's competitor, Minneapolis based General Mills, introduced Wheaties in the 1920s. Cereal is such a big deal here. It has its own president. It's a dream job. Dana McNabb. You're definitely enthusiastic about cereal and certainly about breakfast. I am. But around the country, cereal fatigue may be setting in. Instead, eggs are on a roll, with breakfast sandwich sales up 10%, while cereal, though still an $8 billion industry, has dropped a billion over the past nine years. So McNabb's team got to work on re-energizing some old favorites. What does re-energizing mean? (laughs) Bringing excitement back to people's relationship with cereal. You'll love the taste of chocolate and peanut butter. Excitement often seems to involve sugar, as with the new chocolate peanut butter, let me taste this Cheerios. This is breakfast dessert. <laughs> is the world a better place for having chocolate peanut butter Cheerios? I would have to say definitely yes. McNabb says another brilliant stroke, shaping the marshmallows in Lucky Charms into tiny unicorns, has boosted sales by double digits that made a big difference you changed the shape of the marshmallow yeah you had a meeting talked about about the news
12: we did have a
6: meeting about that several
5: several (laughs) it has sugar and like kids
12: love
6: sugar right (laughs) that's a good thing right
5: (laughs) is it the most nutritious choice probably not wendy lopez is a registered dietitian and the perfect person to ask the big question what do you eat for breakfast?
12: When I'm rushing, I actually have a smoothie. Usually I'll put some kind of yogurt and I'll put vegetables in there too. Really? I know it sounds a little crazy. That sounds horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be something like spinach or cucumber and then I'll balance it with a banana. <laughs> I know your face. <laughs>
5: Sorry, I'll the balance. combination just got to you Have you had it? Spinach and cucumber? No. <laughs> Is there anything that you just absolutely cannot in your worst nightmare, imagine eating for breakfast. Pumpkin spice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't Tis say- Tis the season, what yes, you Yes, exactly, <laughs> I'm sorry. Pumpkin spice bacon, pumpkin spice no, eggs, no. no? I
6: do draw the line of pumpkin spice. I'm excited.
5: Drawing the line is what Will Fulton that. probably Get wishes it. he'd done. After 82 consecutive bowls of cereal, he didn't quite feel himself, go figure this made me lethargic it made me confused of course in fairness nobody suggests that anybody eat lucky charms exclusively
3: no uh, this is
5: something i totally brought in myself all my life people have said breakfast is the most important meal is that true eating breakfast really helps to set the tone for what
12: you're going to be eating for the rest of the day
5: if i could eat my favorite breakfast every day. It would just be bacon and eggs.
12: Do you have any favorite vegetables that you enjoy?
5: (laughs) Not to go with bacon and eggs in a smoothie. Okay. (laughs) So whatever you choose, before you leave the house today, well, you know what to do.
4: These familiar goodies are probably the very definition of a recipe for success. Luke Burbank has the tale of the tot.
13: Behold the humble tater tot, that staple of American casseroles and cafeterias. And like the cult film, Napoleon Dynamite, that made them famous to a generation.
0: Napoleon, give me some of your tots. No, go find your own.
13: Tater tots were created on the Oregon-Idaho border back in 1953 by Nephi and Golden Grigg, co-owners of the Ore-Ida Potato Company. The brothers were looking for something to do with all the odd bits of potato left over after cutting French fries.
8: It was scraps. It was trash.
13: Dan Whalen is a food blogger who's written an entire tater tot cookbook.
8: They put the scraps together, put it in the deep fryer, and realized that it
13: would be delicious. Delicious, but not popular, initially. The problem, if you can believe it, was that tater tots were too affordable.
8: People not only knew it was scraps, but the price point was very low. And classic, like, (laughs) economics, they just raised the price. And people are like, wow, these must have value to them now.
13: (laughs) They're bite-sized potato nuggets. Eventually, Americans fell in love, and last year, according to industry statistics, we ate something like 36 billion tater tots. And it wasn't just at Bowling Alley snack bars, either. I make them fancy tater tots. Sometimes they're called pom Tater tots have appeared on the menus of some of the finest restaurants in the country, like Chef David Kinch's three Michelin star-rated Manresa in Los Gatos, California. Dan Whalen, who works out of his Boston kitchen, doesn't have any Michelin stars, but he has explored the tater tot in all its nuggety glory. Like tater tot nachos, better known as... These are tachos. Tachos. Cheers. To tater tot latkes with caviar. What's the price per tot here if you factor in the caviar? (laughs) I don't know, three, four dollars. A tot? I just ate $6 worth of tater tot. I'm to make sure I really enjoy this experience. And to a holiday classic, just in time for Thanksgiving.
8: This is the tater tot stuffing. It is all the
13: ingredients you would use for stuffing, but instead of bread, tater tots. Do you feel like this is a dish that could actually keep a number of American families together? Because when they're talking about the tater tots, they're not talking about politics? if the food's that good, then that's all you're gonna talk about as a family. The tater tot has become truly a hot potato.
4: When it comes to seasoning, some like it hot. And to clear the palate, how about a beverage that sparkles? Serena Altschul and Michelle Miller have both sides covered.
12: Celebrities like Natalie Portman. On top of it.
8: It's
12: okay. Tyra Banks. And I got supermodels for you too if you want to like date any of those girls. <laughs> and Jeff Goldblum.
14: I like all your, uh, all your uh, gestures.
12: Have tried to beat the heat on the hugely popular weekly web series Hot
0: Ones. I was fascinated by interview shows in general. Like, it's the oldest construct in media.
12: producer Chris Schoenberger and host Sean Evans created the show.
0: When he approached me, he's like, hey, what do you think about a show where we interview celebrities while eating violently hot chicken wings? (coughs) Oh, that's terrible. We didn't really expect hot sauce to break down people the way that it does. Very impressive.
6: Thanks. I mean, it's spicy, but...
0: I'm just trying to read your eyes on that. It's hot. (laughs) I think the mechanics of the show are just this one big trust exercise with Sean. (laughs) (laughs) There have been times where I'm looking across the table and I'm like, this person is up against the ropes. Like, I don't even know if they're going to make it.
12: I need some ice cream, mama. And at about 3 million views per episode, Hot Ones shows no signs of cooling off. Michelle, you'll be on this side. Okay. I even took a turn in the hot seat. So you go from mile to double X.
0: Yeah. We're doing five wings, and it gets hot here in a hurry. Cheers. Cheers. What are the tips
12: you give to folks on how to handle all this hotness?
0: So this is the real problem with hot sauce is there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to run. (sighs)
12: The popularity of hot ones may partly be due water. to our changing tastes. Hot sauce sales are increasing faster than any other condiment and the total hot sauce market is approaching two billion dollars a year. And the source of some of the most intense heat is in this field in South Carolina. You're with the what company?
14: The Puckerbutt Pepper Company.
12: Smoking Ed Curry is the founder of this creatively named pepper company
14: 95 countries get our products on a regular basis.
12: And he thinks his product is downright addictive.
14: When you eat super hot peppers and you get you get a endorphin rush.
12: He's not just blowing smoke. A compound in chilies called capsaicin fools us into thinking our bodies are burning. Prompting the release of pain-relieving endorphins, producing a natural high.
14: I might have been catching a little buzz (laughs) eating peppers.
12: And he's spreading that buzz through his prized pepper, the fearsome Carolina Reaper, currently ranked as the hottest pepper in the world, around 1,000 times hotter than a jalapeno.
14: When we cut one in half... See all that oil in there? The glistening? Yes. That's what hurts oh.
12: you. Cheers. Then of course, he wanted to share.
14: You notice how it's hotter right away? That's the oil
12: <laughs> reacting
14: with the receptors.
12: Have the endorphins kicked in yet?
14: Yeah, probably starting right now.
12: <coughs> they never did. The
10: things I do for my
12: job.
14: Do you want to hit me? Uh.
13: Did that hurt? No. (laughs) Do you like some sparkling
0: water with your liquors? Always, always, yeah.
1: What was silly business for the Three Stooges (laughs) is all business for Alex Gomberg. Well, almost.
3: Ready, one, two, three.
1: Oh, wow! Yeah. He's a fourth generation seltzer man working at the Brooklyn based company started by his great grandfather, Mo. You can say it's in his blood. So, what's really changed since your great grandfather was doing this? Not as far much. as the process, nothing. Even this new machine is about a century old. Each vintage bottle is filled with just two things, New York City tap
13: water. We chill the water to 42 degrees.
1: Cold. And a charge of carbon dioxide. This is our carbonator.
13: There's a paddle going around that's actually making the seltzer.
1: Gomberg doesn't just make the stuff, he delivers it. And what's crystal clear is across America, this pressurized mix is having a moment. Oh my gosh, it's everywhere. It's so it's like a wall of sparkling water. Melanie Hanchy oh is an gosh. editor at Food and Wine magazine. Should we call this category seltzer or should we call it sparkling water? What do you call it? I think they're all variations on a theme and I think ultimately it's just all bubbly water. To me,
3: Anything that's water-based, that has bubbles in it, is just bubbly water.
1: And bubbly water, with CO2 added or carbonated naturally, is booming. Sales of bubbly water, of sparkling water, have more or less tripled in the last
3: 10 years. And that can be really attributed to one big food trend, and that's the trend towards health and wellness, and essentially the demonization of sugar
1: in drinks. One of the biggest sellers is LaCroix. But it's a crowded market with many brands and flavors. Some are even spiked with alcohol.
0: Cheers! mix all the flavors with it and you can really feel it.
1: For Barry Joseph, this is way more than a trend.
0: I like to say to people, welcome to the age of effervescence.
1: He's an (laughs) expert on the subject. He even wrote the book on
0: it. We wouldn't have seltzer today if it weren't for Joseph Priestley. At the end of the 18th century, this scientist on the side was fascinated with how when you would hold CO2 over water, and you combined it together, that carbonation would stay in that water if you held it under pressure.
1: So it's water plus an experience.
0: That's right. It's that experience of having the water enter their mouth and create this taste sensation. That could be sometimes shocking, sometimes crisp, sometimes harsh, but always satisfying.
1: So some people will say, oh, I'm not a seltzer person. I'm a sparkling water girl. What does that
0: mean? I would say it's all the same thing. It's all just branding, it's all just marketing. It's all just carbonated water.
1: What would the world be without Seltzer and sparkling water?
0: As some people would say, much flatter.
1: (laughs) Seltzer, sparkling water, whatever you call it, it's making a splash with all ages, including my three-year-old daughter, who tried it with milk and chocolate syrup An old-fashioned treat known as an egg cream. Yum. (laughs) Yum? Is that yummy? Eat, drink, and be merry. A special edition of Sunday Morning. Here again is Jane Pauley.
4: Doesn't really look like a public enemy, but a lot of people think the plastic straw is the last straw. And Tony DeCoppel is just back from a town doing something about it.
15: You don't think much about a straw. That is, of course, until it fails you. Try and suck
9: that milkshake through there.
15: It's an effort, right? A lot of work for a little teeny bit. Right. In Seattle, Bob Donegan and his team at Ivar's and Kid Valley restaurants have spent hundreds of hours testing Straws.
9: We have paper straws, we have plastic straws from plants. We
15: have All this because millions of plastic straws end up as litter, often in the oceans. Which is why this past summer, Seattle became the largest city in America to address this problem by banning plastic straws in restaurants and replacing them with compostable or paper options.
9: The tourists are amused by this. They think this is a great adventure. What, what is this about? How come I can't suck your milkshake through this straw? Well, the straws that work aren't compostable, so that's why. Oh, it becomes an education opportunity.
15: And if you ask environmental advocate Dune Ives, the straw is only the beginning. So the straw is a symbol. It's a token, as you put it. Yes. It's a symbol of what?
2: It's a symbol of our consumption. It's a symbol of our relationship to single-use plastic that has no end of life. You cannot recycle straws.
15: Ives is executive director of Lonely Whale, an organization that, through social media campaigns like Stop Sucking, has helped portray the plastic straw as something we can do without. Isn't there something to be said on behalf of convenience?
4: As a mom
2: of a a four-and-a-half-year-old, I will have to say yes, there is something to be said for convenience. So the question has to become then, how much are we willing to forsake our planet for the sake of a cup of coffee in a to-go container?
0: Thank you. That's a
2: lot
10: of cups. Look at that. Yeah. Are there straws in the bag? Yes. Yeah.
15: The truth is, the plastic straw is just part of the throwaway packaging involved in eating on the go. Five drinks. Three straws?
5: Well, it's got a few more straws in there.
15: Four straws? Four. Five straws. That's correct. Perfect. Lynn Dyer has been tracking the anti straw movement as president of the Food Service Packaging Institute. What's the argument against an outright ban?
2: You're not taking into account any of the considerations for your consumers or your customers. So, for example, what are the alternatives? You know, are there alternatives?
15: It's a question on the minds of more and more Americans. Paper? Usually I, I ask for a paper straw. Plastic? If you didn't have a plastic straw, what would you use? My mouth. Metal?
1: My metal straw, it's my favorite
5: thing. I have like 20 of them.
15: Metal is also the straw of choice for Dune Ives. So then when you're done with your straw, Mm -hmm. would you just sort of shake it out?
2: Yeah, a little paper towel. Shake it out, put it back in your bag.
15: It's not a hassle? It's not a big deal. No. No? (laughs) But what she really prefers is not using a straw at all. That, of course, might be hard for some folks to swallow. Are you taking money from the mop industry? Because I'm imagining <laughs> quite a lot of spills in this. The great... paper
12: and paper napkin
5: industry, definitely.
15: Uh, yeah. 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 yeah.
12: yeah.
4: <laughs> Balsamic vinegar. Black gold is what the experts call it. Seth Doan explains why. <laughs>
3: In Italy, this is called the vendemmia, or grape harvest. Yet this Lambrusco varietal won't become a red wine, but something else which could take far longer to mature.
16: Balsamic vinegar truly begins in a vineyard.
3: Rolando Beramendi is a chef, cookbook author, and U.S. importer of artisanal Italian foods.
16: But I think that what is very important is the skin. You see how thick is the skin? It has all the tannins in there, and that gives it color. And that gives it the
3: color and flavor? as well as flavor. He introduced us to his balsamic supplier, Francesco Leonardi.
16: <laughs> Normally, he explained,
3: what's harvested today will become a good balsamic vinegar in 25 years. Un processo lungo. It's a long process.
16: I don't think there's a more beautiful product in the whole world like balsamic
3: vinegar. It's called the black gold of Modena, this Northern Italian city that's also home to some other notable Italian products, Ferrari, Lamborghini and Maserati. Balsamico can be a luxury product for the table. So valuable that historically it was used as a gift among noble families or as a wedding dowry. It was almost like
16: like you were exchanging DNA <laughs> by exchanging <Blood>. the balsamic <laughs> yeah.
3: vinegar. So Francesco Leonardi, whose family has been at this since the 1870s, explained how they first press the spremuta or grape juice, which is then heated for 24 to 36 hours and put in giant oak barrels for at least two years where it ferments. Then, as it reduces in a process called travaso, it's siphoned into increasingly smaller barrels of different woods. Gelso is marbury,
16: chestnut, frasinus ash. All these different All... types of woods, and they each
3: give different flavor notes.
16: Yes, that's it. It's sort of each one of them will impart and, and leave a, a beautiful mark of flavor in the balsamic vinegar.
3: Leonardi let us sample a balsamic they've been aging for 100 years, which could retail for more than $1,000.
16: Inside this little barrel, there's the history of four generations trapped inside this balsamico. You need
3: many generations at work because this takes so long to make. Certainly, Giovanni Leonardi explained, Those secrets are passed on through generations. He added, you can't make balsamic vinegar in a day. Balsamic is so important to this part of Italy that there's a giant sculptured drop of it sitting in a traffic circle, though clearly it's more common at the table. People are gonna look at this and say, this doesn't seem like the balsamic vinegar that I buy in the store for $5 or $10.
16: No, it's not. And, and just like, you know, you can buy a little Fiat 500, you can buy a Ferrari, right? This is Ferrari. The other one is a Fiat Cinquecento.
3: <laughs> Which Rolando Beramendi thinks may be best appreciated simply on a spoon. Mm. To me,
16: it, it, it just coats my entire mouth with, with a feeling that no other product gives me. It's more than just the food. It's it's
6: balsamical.
4: (laughs) These are just a few of the products a talented food designer has helped create over the years. And with Thanksgiving just a few days off, Lee Cowan tells us she's still at it.
11: All right, Bird.
6: Nice
4: bird.
9: Although the bird might disagree, few Thanksgiving turkeys have been so lucky. In the hands of Sarah Massoni, any food, from fig to fowl, is destined for gastronomic greatness.
6: Just shove it up in there as much as you can and as far back as you can.
9: She's an alchemist of taste. Just look at her butter, mixed with rosemary, sage, and garlic. And that's only after her turkey has taken a 36-hour dip in her citrusy brine. Finally, to add one more savory note, she weaves a blanket of bacon on top.
6: All of the bacon fat is gonna go down through the turkey and give it a whole different layer of flavor.
9: Missoni wasn't just getting a head start on Thanksgiving.
6: Now we wait.
9: She was demonstrating her job as a food designer here at Oregon State University's gleaming Food Innovation Center.
6: We have spice rubs. Lots of beautiful hot sauces.
9: Hundreds have paid big dollars to get Sarah's culinary counsel.
6: There's actually a a floral note to this product.
9: Making sure their new food products are both safe and sumptuous. It's
6: pH 6.14.
9: A food science background gives her the technical knowledge to do what she does. But she has a physical attribute, too.
6: I knew that there was something different about my tongue, but I mean, most people don't spend a lot of time looking at their tongue.
9: Her taste buds, she says, are actually bigger and better than most, giving her what some call a million dollar palette.
6: I like to joke and say I actually have a billion dollar palette. A billion dollar palate. Yeah, because I've helped so many people become million dollar companies. So with, what's your first ingredient that you're working with?
9: Jay Perry is a chef who was hoping to get some advice on his new line of salad dressings. And he got a mouthful from the Sony. Oh, there's something in there that's just not right. It's bitter.
8: Yeah.
6: No, you got too much mustard.
8: She's done this for so long, she can detect every little nuance of flavor.
9: At Portland's salt and straw Ice Cream, you can get all manner of flavors, including one that tastes like sweet potato casserole.
15: We also have, like, cranberry sauce.
9: Head ice cream maker Tyler Malik worked with Missoni for yeah. months, and he says few people can turn such complicated flavors in into a reality.
15: We spent the first six months of our company right there beside her. If we had technical issues like the caramel melting into the cream, we could game plan on, like, here's different techniques, and I think that that's an amazing talent.
9: It's, it's that kind of praise from her clients that sometimes brings Missoni to tears. Why is that so emotional?
6: Well, I don't want to be on TV crying. (laughs) Because when I put my heart into a food product only, and it's successful, it brings great joy. Her
9: emotional connection with food is as sweet as her ingredients. Moment of truth.
6: There's our turkey.
9: With her turkey fresh out of the smoker, there in all its browned, bacony goodness, there was nothing left for Sarah Masoni to do but her jaw. You ready? Cheers.
6: Turkey. <laughs> well, you can taste the sage and the rosemary and the garlic on the breast. Mmm. It's good, right?
4: Now serving lunch. Pepperoni rolls, to be precise. Unfamiliar to many of you, but a mainstay of the Mountain State. Connor Knighton takes us home.
0: Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. I grew up in West Virginia, and so when those country roads take me home, my first stop is to get a pepperoni roll. West Virginia's most popular snack can be found at small bakeries all across the state. Pepperoni rolls are sold at gas stations, sampled at contests, even raced in-between innings at minor league baseball games in Morgantown. A
11: dozen
13: hot pepperoni rolls and a bag of minis. A dozen minis, a dozen
0: hot? At Tomorrow's Italian Bakery in Clarksburg, the staff makes them just as fast as the customers can eat them.
3: I need six hot pepperoni rolls.
0: But if you're not a local, then you probably have no idea what I'm talking about.
17: The first time I met somebody who didn't know what a pepperoni roll was, I was was flabbergasted. Why haven't you had this amazing culinary delight?
0: Author Candace Nelson grew up in Wellsburg, West Virginia, and has become the state's pepperoni roll expert. She frequently finds herself describing what one is in terms of what one isn't.
17: So oftentimes you'll hear it's a pizza pocket, or it's a hot pocket, or maybe it's a calzone or a stromboli, and and it's similar to that, but that's kind of stripping away its history.
0: That history dates back to West Virginia's coal mining heyday, when Italian immigrants moved to north-central West Virginia to work in the mines. They ended up bringing their culinary traditions down with them, and the pepperoni roll, which is just Italian bread with pepperoni baked inside, was developed as a convenient, one-handed snack that wouldn't spoil in their lunch pails. This might sound silly, but it's something that's unique to us, and you know, it's, it's from here, made by us. Chris Pallotta is the owner of Country Club Bakery in Fairmont, which was founded in 1927 by Giuseppe Argiro, a coal miner from the Calabria region of Italy, who's generally credited as being the first to sell pepperoni rolls. As he soon found out, more than just miners were craving a snack that was cheap, hearty, and portable. A big part of our business is that they travel so well because it's not real messy. People grab a dozen pepperoni rolls, throw them in the car, and you know they're all on a vacation. They go to ball games.
6: Roads, take me home.
0: After all these years, it's surprising the snack has never really traveled beyond the boundaries of the state. You can't find them anywhere else. Trust me, I've tried. Perhaps that's why there's so much pepperoni pride. If you're a West Virginian and you're holding one, that means you are home.
17: The pepperoni roll really does kind of embody who we are as West Virginians. It's, it's simple, it's hardworking, and it's utilitarian, and I think that really speaks to who we are as a whole.
4: Rita Braver has been spending some time in the kitchen with model and cookbook author Chrissy Teigen. Oh yeah, and her famous husband too. This recipe comes
2: from my mother, Thai garlic fried ribs. Super easy. If the so name Chrissy Teigen
7: conjures up memories of her sports illustrated frolics on the beach, turns out she'd actually rather be in her own LA kitchen.
2: When we wake up, The first question is, what are we going to do for dinner? And yes, her sous chef is her
7: husband, the Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony winner singer and composer, John Legend. She got the grease fire. I told you. (laughs) For better or worse.
8: The grease fire has been averted.
7: John Legend to the rescue. (laughs) In fact, things look pretty hot in the video for this number one song Legend wrote for Tegan. But listen carefully to the very first line of that love ballad. What would I do without your smart mouth? So what about that line?
15: Well, anybody that knows Chrissy knows she's got a quick wit and a sharp tongue and a smart mouth. (laughs) I think that's what keeps things exciting and interesting.
2: There's flavors that I love together. We use a ton of garlic in this house. Too bad we don't Uh, have smell vision
7: That uninhibited style has led to a role on the cable show lip sync battle. (laughs) And Teagan's online quips have made her a social media sensation, with more than 10 million followers on Twitter and more than 20 million on Instagram. She's sent out photos of her own stretch marks and her husband's butt. But she also tweets about political matters. You have been unabashed in your criticism of Donald Trump, and as I understand, he's blocked you from his Twitter feed. I would have blocked me, too, honestly. (laughs) But nothing's blocked her growing fan base.
15: The number one comment I get from people who used to be my fans (laughs) is how much they love
7: Chrissy. Tegan was honored this past Monday as one of Glamour Magazine's 2018 Women of the Year. love you guys so much.
2: Sorry. Please don't post this. Nobody will ever, do not ever show anyone that I cry or have emotions.
7: (laughs) Tegan grew up on the West Coast, where her modeling career began when she was spotted working in a Southern California surf shop. She is still close with her mom, who is Thai. Hi, Dad. Oh, and her dad, who is of interview. Norwegian descent. This is Rita. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm he good dropped in, in as, as she and Legend yeah. Yeah. introduced Hi, us to two-year-old Hi, Luna Miles. and baby Miles.
6: <laughs> Miles always laughs at Papa.
7: In her usual style, Tegan let her fans know how hard it was for her to get pregnant and about her postpartum depression after her first baby.
2: I think people on social media are my friends, and I think they deserve to know. I
7: don't know. Is that so weird? That's kind of weird. Weird or not, anything Teagan does seems to
2: draw big media attention. It sounds ridiculous, but people have this belief that if you eat your placenta...
7: Like a few weeks ago when we featured part of this interview on their Sunday morning 40th anniversary special, and she confided that she staved off postpartum depression with her second child, in part by eating the placenta.
2: I'm in LA, it's very normal. They grill it here.
7: You can try some of mine after. Luckily, she was kidding. But there's no denying Tegan's fascination with food. Her first cookbook was a bestseller and she has just released a sequel.
2: So while John's ruining the ribs, I am doing a oh, slaw over here. So how do you balance the love of eating and the fact that you've got to look good I know. at I the just, same time? I don't care that much. I tell John, I'm like, I don't really have to ever look good in a swimsuit again. I guess that's the only way to put
7: it. <laughs> Sports <laughs> Illustrated's loss maybe the rest of the that's world's game. What's it's the nice dressing?
2: Way. It's a ton of garlic, toasted sesame oil, soy, ginger. Cooking for us isn't about just eating. It's about the whole experience of cooking.
7: And doing it together, I yes. guess
2: burning things together.
7: Yes. Because I can attest to the fact that Chrissy Teigen can cook some mean right. garlic mm-hmm. greens.
2: Good thing your flight's not till tomorrow, oh, no, you not so have Time to air out. Yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. When you talk about eating healthy, few people have a better recipe for living than the man Martha Teichner has been foraging with. After which, we'll sample a drink that's the toast of San Francisco with our John Blackstone.
8: There's actually some berries back here. Really? It's like some blackberry. Ooh, I love blackberries.
18: For me, it was fun. Look at that. Found (laughs) something. Yay, blackberries. (laughs) And all this beautiful sage. But for Chef Sean Sherman, a member of the Ogallala Lakota tribe.
8: We're going to harvest just a little bit of this stuff, but we're going to leave a little bit of tobacco down first. It's just kind of a... prayer and offering
18: foraging in the Minnesota countryside so this is milkweed is like a spiritual return that's a huge sunflower Yeah, we can actually cook that too to a time when Native Americans lived on the plants and animals that grew wild you can steam it and boil it across a country that was theirs this is amazing it's like a field of magic
8: yeah there's a lot here We're going to make a little bit of a kind of a wild soup. SHERMAN IS ON A MISSION
18: TO CELEBRATE AND SHOWCASE NATIVE CUISINE AND GIVE THE PAST
8: A FUTURE. YOU CAN THROW A DART AT A MAP OF NORTH AMERICA, AND WHEREVER IT LANDS, THERE'S GOING TO BE CULTURE, HISTORY, FOOD, PEOPLE, AND FLAVOR TO PLAY WITH RIGHT THERE. AND SO MANY STORIES TO TELL. YOU CAN WRITE A BOOK. HE'S DONE JUST THAT. The
18: Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen won this year's James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook. Sherman spent a couple of decades cooking in fancy kitchens around Minneapolis before deciding to apply what he knew to native foods. The Sioux Chef is the name of the catering
8: company he started in 2014. It's fun to put artistry on the plates and make food look pretty, but it's really about having these food pieces tell their story because we think about our grandparents and our great-grandparents and the foods that they ate. And for a lot of Native American peoples who were removed from their foodways, they started to lose a lot of those stories.
18: When European settlers seized their lands, when their bison were killed and poverty corrupted their diet,
8: So if you look at the epidemics that we have in health crisis on native reservations, you see immense amount of type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease, all these things based off of a bad diet. So it just really shot me on a path to try to figure out what were my Lakota ancestral foods. um. Which is why Sherman is taking his recipes
18: for healthy traditional food to reservations, including the Prairie Island Indian community southeast of Minneapolis along the Mississippi River. Home to members of the Dakota nation.
8: You just get what you can reach. Just throw them
18: in a bowl. This may not look like a political statement. Enlisting kids from the tribe to help him gather and cook foods their ancestors ate. It's yeah, fine, it's
8: because we'll save these seeds because we can grow them next year in the garden, okay?
18: But it is. He says he's decolonizing their diet. Not on the menu, beef, chicken, Refined sugar, dairy products, wheat flour, foods brought by European settlers.
8: So tonight we have cedar braised bison with um, wild aronia berries that we harvested. Enjoy. Sean
18: Sherman's goal? Not just to produce a healthy meal.
8: <laughs> so I'm glad you're doing it. Thank you.
18: But to feed the soul of the
8: nation. What do you guys think of the dinner? Having this chance to impact communities, all of my being poured into it, you know, I really feel it. And I am gaining a voice that we're able to share to help others have a voice. Does that feel pretty good? And it feels great.
11: <laughs> With cable cars running past its door, the Buena Vista Cafe, opened in 1916, is a San Francisco institution. Hey, hi, John. Hi, John. I'm John. Paul
10: Nolan. Nice meeting hi. you.
11: And for over 40 years, it's had the same bartender who's been making the same drink that made the Buena Vista famous. How many Irish coffees have you made in
10: 41 years? The a that they say four to five million. I just take their word for it. I didn't count them.
11: If anyone knows the story of how Irish coffee first came to America back in 1952, it's Paul Nolan.
10: Yeah, the original recipe came from Ireland, the inventor. He gave the recipe to the beat writer for the Chronicle, Stan Delaplaine.
11: So, Stan Delaplaine, who introduced, who brought Irish coffee from Ireland to here, he was a newspaper guy.
10: He was a newspaper guy. He was a
11: reporter. Guy. So is it proper for me to say that maybe a, a news reporter is the originator of Irish coffee in America rather than a bartender?
10: Well, let's just say he conveyed the uh, the recipe to the right source.
11: That recipe: two sugars, hot coffee, and of course the active ingredient.
10: This is about an ounce and a third here of Irish whiskey.
11: Then the finishing touch: carefully floating a layer of heavy cream on top. An irresistible combination.
10: And he tastes the whiskey. It's dangerous to do this
11: with a mustache.
10: <laughs> Usually we're giving an extra napkin when people have mustaches. <laughs> and nobody drinks only one.
11: Bob Freeman admits he wasn't really an Irish coffee fan when he bought the Buena Vista back in 2001.
10: At the time, they were doing about a quarter million Irish coffees a year. A quarter million Irish yeah, coffees a year? Yeah, Around that number, yes.
11: You made this yeah. because this was a sound business decision, oh, yes. not because of any romantic no, idea about no, no, Irish no, coffee. No, I,
10: I like it. it, a, it a wonderful drink. Matter of fact, now I love it,
11: <laughs> and much loved by locals and tourists alike.
8: There's no experience like being at this table or at that bar and having an Irish coffee at the Buena Vista. Every
11: week, a truckload of Irish whiskey arrives at the cafe, enough to go through a hundred bottles a day. They say the Buena Vista is the world's largest single consumer of Irish whiskey. <laughs> Not surprising, given the way Paul Nolan pours the stuff.
10: And just in case I didn't give everybody what they deserve, I always add a little bit more.
4: When it comes to food issues, our Jim Gaffigan is all in.
17: Food. I like food. Well, I like to eat food. This may not surprise you by looking at me. After all, I am overweight. Most Americans are overweight. Depending on which study you've read, or in my case, which you pretend to have read, 70% of Americans are overweight. 70%! That's most of us. If that many Americans are overweight, shouldn't we just adjust the weight norm? I mean, this is America. We set our mind to something. We can do it. If you've ever walked through a medieval castle or a colonial home, you can tell by the doorways that humans have gotten taller. So now we've gotten heavier, way heavier. Wouldn't adjusting the American weight norm be easier than three-fourths of this huge country losing weight? I know I'm not going to lose weight. I don't have time. I have five young children, I tour the country doing stand-up comedy, I act in independent films nobody sees, and I do these CBS Sunday morning commentaries that people take way too seriously and attack me for on social media. Combine all these activities with my major commitment to what only can be described as violent, abusive eating, I don't have time to lose weight. I don't have time, but, more importantly, I don't have the interest. So if 70% of Americans are overweight, that must mean that 30% are underweight. What about these people? These poor, thin, healthy people? They need our help. 30%? Ugh, that's like an epidemic. We should help them by shaming them. I don't care if they can't help it. It's disgusting. Anyway, I gotta go to brunch.
4: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Sunday morning.